Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Again, as I said earlier, end of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus has been speaking about following him and this thing called the kingdom of God. And now he's ending the Sermon on the Mount with a list of warnings, sober warnings. I'm just gonna read the whole thing and then we'll get into it, starting in verse 15 all the way through verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. It says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of our Lord. And what a doozy it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know what else to say other than help us to understand your word today. We trust you to speak to us. We trust everything that you say. We trust you as a person who has created life and knows how life ought to look. And you yourself are the source, the journey, the origin of the good life. We pray that as we sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus, that Jesus, you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would use me, Lord. This is a difficult one. I'm having trouble with it. But God, I thank you that you do not save through cleverness of speech or ingenuity or fancy words or oratory. You save through your word. Faith comes from hearing hearing the word of Christ, so I pray that God, you would help me to be faithful with what you have already said. And today, may you draw straight lines with a crooked stick. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we spoke about the narrow way, and all that really was referring to is Jesus speaking about himself. You wanna follow me, that is, your, that is one of two options. You can follow me, or you can do something else. Following me is difficult, it's, it comes with its challenges. I'm calling you to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow me, to give up everything for the kingdom for, uh, for, uh, uh, in pursuit of me. That's what it means to be a disciple. Everything else is the broad way and it's easy and popular. So don't go that way because even though it's easy and popular, it leads to death, leads to destruction. Give up your life and you'll find it in me. So we spoke about the narrow way and what it really referred to is just following Jesus as a, uh, as a disciple. Now Jesus is gonna take that theme and he's gonna drive it a little bit deeper and he's gonna speak about a couple things. One, he's gonna speak specifically about prophets and then he's gonna move more broadly to disciples in general. 
So those prophets, those who are tasked with speaking to those who are being discipled, those who are speaking on behalf of uh, God for the good of the church. And this is a gift of the Holy Spirit that the church thrives on and desperately needs. Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit involving a word from God given from one believer for the benefit or edification of the, of the other. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians described it as a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Saying this is a gift of the Spirit in which God speaks to you as he will through other people who have been given that gift or whatever at that moment or for, uh, however it looks. Prophecy is for building up the church, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Namely, because the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. We're told Paul actually was uh, contrasting tongues with prophecy and he said tongues is actually not for people, that's for God. He's speaking tongues to God, but prophecy is to other people. You're speaking a word from the Lord to other people that he gives you in that moment of time in which it is needed and it is to build them up and edify them in a special way. The one who prophesies, Paul says, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Therefore, in light of that, because it is a gift to the church by the Holy Spirit, because it is for our good, and because God uses it to encourage and to build, we should not only allow it, but encourage it and, it, and, it, and expect it. In the normal day-to-day activity of the church as we meet together and as we eat together and as we pray for one another, we should be expecting, hoping, wanting, seeking God, speaking through individuals to one another. He does that. And while we embrace that practice, we also know we've got to test it because our authority of truth is the word of God. The word of God, that the prophecy which Peter said is not uh, as a result of the will of man, but uh, came about as men were moved by the Spirit. They spoke from God. It was cataloged in a bunch of letters, uh, histories, chronologies, uh, canonized into a book that we use as our staple and as our anchor. Everything then is anchored by and compared to what God has already said through his apostles and prophets. And yet today, he also speaks, he nudges, he leads by, gives deep impressions, speaks about certain situations, specific ones that you might not know about. He uh, gives you words of knowledge and wisdom. He does that type of thing. It's a very dynamic relationship that we would expect from a God who is in relationship to us. He's not far off, he is intimately involved with his people, and so when we think about a church, and I don't mean, I'm not narrowing this down to the Sunday morning gathering, but just the people of God as we live our lives together throughout the week. We should expect, as disciples wanting to follow Jesus, that God is present with us, leading us in community. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like uh, that where might be facing a situation or in a, uh, uh, in a certain situation, you don't know what to do and God uses somebody to give you a word from the Lord and it was exactly what you needed. Maybe it encouraged you, maybe you were, uh, maybe you were just going through uh, something very hellish and it was a word of encouragement. Maybe God spoke through somebody into your life, something that only you knew or maybe you didn't even know. 
God does some of those uh, things like that and he does that today and we expect it and we love it and we test it according to what he's already said in his word. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. And so we as a church would say that prophecy is so good and we love it and we embrace it, but like anything that's good, it can be manipulated and abused. We've seen that done as well all over the world. What Jesus is saying here, and I want to be very clear about what he's saying and what he's not saying. When he says, beware of false prophets, he is not here talking about botched prophetic words. You know, like if you ever felt like God was speaking to you something, you relayed that to someone, maybe it wasn't right. Or maybe someone gave you a word from the Lord and it wasn't exactly accurate. That's okay. There's room for mistakes like that, right? The gifts of the Holy Spirit are those types of things that we have to cultivate. It's like a muscle that you exercise. The muscle was given to you by God, but it's your responsibility to exercise, right? In the same way, these gifts of the Holy Spirit are from God. They're not from ourselves. We don't invent them. We don't create them. They're given to us by God, but we have to cultivate them in the body of Christ and use them. And as you use them, you'll start to notice you make mistakes. That's okay. Have you ever prayed for someone and they didn't get healed? Have you ever prayed for uh, an answer to something and you didn't get it? You ever uh, tried to walk in uh, the prophetic and you maybe made a mistake here and there? That's okay. As you learn and as you exercise those God-given muscles, you will start to grow more in tune with that which the Holy Spirit has gifted you with. And in the process of that, you're going to make mistakes, I'm going to make mistakes, we're all going to make mistakes, so we should just face that and be okay with it, right? That's probably a good rule of thumb for just about everything. Cultivating an atmosphere of grace, we can make mistakes for the purpose of growing more in who we are in Christ. Jesus is not talking about that when he says false prophets. He's not saying beware of people who make mistakes, speaking about a particular type of person who makes their way into a church, okay? He's speaking about false prophets, and we, we kind of get an idea of the type of person he's speaking about in the last part of that sentence when he describes them as those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets who come to you like sheep, but inwardly are nothing like sheep. Here's a few things we can pull from this. I'm just gonna try to move through this section of the passage to get to the last, uh, last part. But here's some things we can pull from it. One, these are individuals that are not a part of the body of Christ. They don't know Jesus. But they clearly are within and they clearly look like they know what they're talking about. Okay? So when the devil attacks, when he brings deception, when he tries to tear apart the body of Christ, when he comes at you, he doesn't tend to wear all of his traditional bells and whistles. You know, the cartoon version of Satan that you see on TV. He never, he never comes like that, you know, with a red pitchfork and the tail and the horns. He comes subtly. He comes disguised as an angel of light, and that's his tendency. He's very subtle. And so we, as Jesus would once say, have to be like doves. We have to be innocent of, uh, as innocent as doves, but as cunning and clever as serpents. We have to be on our guard. 
There will be people, unfortunately, who want to fellowship, not because they love Jesus and not because they love you, but they have an agenda. They're possibly so good at fooling other people that they get people to follow them. They might even be orthodox in their beliefs. They might be saying the right thing, praying really awesomely. They might be uh, just the bastion of what you might think is a, is a, a Christian person, but time will show, and this is what Jesus seems to be saying, time will show they have an agenda that is not kingdom-minded, and it will tear people apart. It will tear relationships apart. It will hurt people's faith. It will cause division. Hence, they are not actually sheep. They are ravenous wolves. They're there to tear people apart. Now, we're not told this to worry. Jesus doesn't even address what to do about those wolves. Paul does later, but, you know, we'll get to that someday. Jesus just kind of moves on, and in almost a, a passing way, in verse 19, tells us, God will take care of them. God will judge them. Uh, Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's judgment. Everyone will stand before God, give an account for how they live their life. But what you are supposed to do is be on your guard and be able to identify them. To identify them specifically by their fruit. Verse 16 through 18. Then he gives us this analogy. He starts speaking about a healthy tree. Something that, you know, I don't have to talk about too much to figure out, but an orange tree isn't going to give you apples. And an apple tree isn't going to give you anvils, right? You're going to get from that tree what it was birthed to do. And a healthy tree is going to give you healthy fruit. And a dying tree isn't going to give you uh, uh, the, the fruit that you're expecting. Jesus using this analogy, what would have stuck so clearly in the minds of his hearers was this concept that in Jesus' day, there, was a, you know, there were certain fruit trees, uh, thinking of one called buckthorn, that in its beginning stages had some blackberries on the tree that looked awfully like grapes, and you could easily mistake them for grapes, but try to make wine with that, with that buckthorn. You'll easily see, this ain't grapes, what would have been easily perceptible to the people listening to Jesus is, hey, if you give it time, you'll see. Don't be fooled by smooth talk, flattering talk. Don't be fooled by excessive spirituality. Don't be fooled by preaching abilities. Look for the fruit. The thing with that is you're not gonna see it overnight, right? You all should be examining my life to make sure that it looks like what I'm telling you. You've often heard that saying, um, Do as I say, not as I do. That's a bad saying. (laughs) In fact, we can probably take this very specific word about prophets and apply it in general to people that we look up to, mentors. Everyone in this room, myself included, should have mentors. We should have people that we look up to who disciple us, people that we look up to who we see. Not just, not just fancy talk, not just people who put on a good show, but people whose lives are so much like Jesus that we, we kind of want to be around them, you know? At least their life is more like Jesus than ours, and we find it somewhat alluring and attractive. We just want to eat lunch with them and talk to them and observe their lives. So... Jesus isn't telling us 
to go on a heresy hunt. And I hope that's not what you take from this. Now you're going to church and home groups and all of that stuff looking for that, that wolf. I'm like, oh, I'm going to find you, boy. Got some heresies. I'm going to be all on your grill. Then you start getting weird, you know? You know that person? They're like the bastion of Christian truth, and they're just like everything you say. They're like almost like grammar cops, just Oxford commas and punctuation, but like with theology. So if you just say one thing wrong, heresy! And they're just all just, just, just trying to correct everything. You're like, bro, just simmer down. I'm trying to, like, trying to eat my pita bread. It's home group. It's like 9 o'clock. I just dropped my kids off. And, you know, got a babysitter. Cut me some slack right now. Don't go heresy hunting. Don't go heresy hunting. Go fruit hunting. Look for fruit. Be all about fruit. Be all about fruit in your own life. As one person, as one sheep in the flock of God here in this church, I'm desperate to find fruit in my life because I, I know that what God is saying to me is, is, is sinking down deep if I can find fruit. But I'm also looking for it in other people. That's how I choose people who I, um, I get spiritual direction and discipleship from. It's not so much their, their spoken game, you know. It's how does that, you know, I, wow, that guy over there really loves his spouse really well. That is an amazing dad. I want to talk to that person. Whatever that looks for in your life, that's a great rule of thumb. Go fruit hunting. Don't be a heresy hunter. Don't be looking under every rock and in every nook and cranny for something wrong. Look for, look for the things that are right. Look for the things that look like Jesus and be attracted to that and chase after it. As Paul would say, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Look for people who are like Christ and then hang out with them. Pretty soon, you'll start looking like Christ and people want to hang out with you. And this is kind of... Um, a culture that we should be looking for, hoping for, and seeing happening in a church. A bunch of people trying their best by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus and learning from each other to do it. Now, Jesus, as he gets this preliminary stuff out of the way, you know, that's an important part of the community of God is God speaking to us and through us to each other as we edify one another. As he gets that out of the way, he now speaks broadly to just disciples in general. And he does a couple things in verse 21 through 23. He gives a couple things that seem to be opposite from one another, almost negative corollaries that don't go together. Polar opposites, they seem. But he's making the argument that they absolutely do go together. And without one or the other, you're not going to fare well in this thing called discipleship and following Christ. I want to talk about those two things, but two things that just absolutely have to go together. You ever encountered something like this? For me, it's easy. It's rice. I'm a Filipino at heart, and even though I'm not a culturally deep Filipino, my dad was, and he introduced into my life, and for the rest of my life, and hopefully into eternity, this thing called rice. And for every meal growing up, I've always eaten rice. Like, it didn't matter what I was eating. I could be eating pizza, but there'd always be rice, you know, with the pizza. It didn't matter. The pizza didn't even really matter anyway. It was just there to supplement the rice. Think of, 
think it was, that's called ulam. Uh, it's something, you know, rice is the staple. Whatever you're eating, you know, steak or chicken or gravy or whatever, that's fine. It's just there to make the rice look pretty. And so I grew up with rice always present at the table. Now, the first time I spent, uh, I spent the night at a buddy's house and uh, was invited over for dinner was when I was 12 years old. Um, and it, I didn't really get out for the first 12 years of my life, which is why I have, like, <laughs> so many social problems, but that's another thing. But when I was invited to this guy's house, I remember sitting down at the dinner table, and there on my plate was a piece of chicken and some squash and, like, a piece of bread. And I kid you not, I wasn't trying to make a scene, but as everyone was digging in, I just kind of looked at it with my fork, and I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know how to eat it, because in my family, rice was mixed with everything else. It didn't matter if it was chicken, it didn't matter if it was broccoli, it didn't matter if it was anything. It was all supposed to be mixed into the rice, and it just made this like pot of stuff, and I just loved it. And so I, I actually like had to watch my buddy like just eat, just cutting and just eating one thing at a time, and it was so strange to me. No rice. But equally as important as rice in my family was this thing called soy sauce, okay? I can't eat rice without soy sauce. It's too bland. I can't eat soy sauce without rice. It's too salty. I have to have them together. That's also a staple in my family. My dad used to have a gallon of soy sauce under the kitchen table. It was in a can that looked like paint thinner, and that's what we would refill our soy sauce bottle with. So I grew up on these things. To which my wife was horrified by. <laughs> she grew up in a Tascadero, and they don't have rice in a Tascadero. <clears throat> when she saw how much soy sauce I put on literally everything, she started to try to change my dietary habits. She started going to the store and getting the soy sauce with the green cap. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> A third of the sodium or something. It's some, that didn't change me. I just started putting three times as much of it on my rice. Over the years, I've started to grow out of that very cultural thing. And, you know, now I eat all sorts of stuff like pita bread and hummus or whatever. <laughs> it is that people eat when they don't have rice. But, you know, I'm growing out of that. So those are two things in my life that have to go together. I can't have one without the other. It's a very stupid analogy that I'm using to try to show what Christ is also sharing. <laughs> there are two things that you absolutely have to have together in your walk with Christ. The first is obedience. Following Christ involves obedience. If you don't have obedience, I don't know what exactly it is that you have. But I think we've been kind of getting that drift as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? Look at all of these verses. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 6, 10, he taught us to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we get to this climactic part of the Sermon on the Mount where he's gonna be saying a lot of this type of stuff, including the verse at hand. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That doesn't sit well with some of us. Jesus is saying, those who don't obey my Father aren't gonna get into my Father's heaven. That's uncomfortable. Because, you know, we also believe that it's by grace through faith that we have been saved, not of our own works. It is a gift of God, and so, but some of us have taken that way too far and we said, you know, we, we've been saved to, to live for ourselves. No, you've been saved to live for a different Lord and Master. And the fruit of the power of the gospel in your life is going to be a transformed life, one in which you see in Christ something greater than yourself. And it persuades you to follow him rather than your own path. Following Jesus entails doing what he says. You absolutely cannot follow Jesus unless you take him seriously at his word and intend to do everything that he said and did. It's inseparable. What you do tells the truth about you. There is one exception. This is where the soy sauce comes in. And this is in verse 22, which, you know, that initial reading is kind of strange to read because it almost seems uh, it almost seems contradictory. But let's just read again, verse twenty-two together. It says, "On that day, many will come to me, Lord, Lord, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." That almost at first glance doesn't even make any sense. Notice all the list of good works that Jesus is referring to. He just got done saying, if you want to follow me, lip service is not enough. You got to obey me. You got to do the things that I'm calling you to do and I tell you to do and that I myself do. We could look at this entire list of things that this unnamed group of people were doing and say, that's absolutely what Jesus told us to do. Don't we see from the Old Testament to the New Testament the prophecy is a gift of God for the people of God? The prophet Joel said that in those days, in our day, there would be prophecy. We would see dreams and visions and prophesy. Don't we see that in the Apostle Paul that this is something that's a gift to the church and we're called to do it and participate in it and allow it to be done? Casting out demons, wasn't that a sign that the kingdom of of heaven, the finger of God had touched down earth when Jesus began for the first time in history to expel and eject demons from uh, human bodies? And didn't he then tell his disciples, go and do the same? Cast out demons in my name and didn't they do it? And didn't Jesus himself, after doing a lot of mighty works, then tell disciples like us, when I go, you will do mightier works than these because I go away to be with the Father. And here's a group of people doing all of those things. Which one of us in this building wouldn't look at that list and go, I would love to do those three things. I would love to do one of those three things. 
and yet something is amiss. The group is clearly not on Jesus' good side, and we have to ask, well, why? They were doing all the right things. In fact, they were doing the very thing that Jesus said to do in the prior verse, it seems, but they're missing something. Now, it's difficult to specify what it is that he's speaking about because we don't know who Jesus is talking to. And in that world, as some of the audiences Jesus would have been speaking to, there's a list of weirdos that were infiltrating the people of God and trying to sway them. There were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, there were the anti-Roman zealots, there were the Judean sign prophets, there, were the, uh, uh, there was Simon Magus that uh, Paul encounters, or Peter, uh, Paul, Peter, one of them. There were the Gnostics, there was that weird false Messiah that shows up in the, in the Gospels called Bar Koba. There were the Hellenistic antinomians, those that believed, oh, grace is all, so we don't, you know, the law is, is invalid. We don't have to actually obey anymore. Uh, there were all sorts of different sects and cults uh, infiltrating the people of God, trying to pull them away from following Jesus. Could have been any one of those. We don't know. But one thing we do know is what Jesus says to them. And he says in verse 23, after he rebukes them, after they come to him and say, hey, Lord, Lord, we did all of this stuff in your name, then will I declare to them, I, I don't even know you. Here's a soy sauce to your rice. It's not just enough that you have good results in your life. It's not just enough that you're a productive human, that you have a list of religious requirements that you have fulfilled, that you do good works, that you do good stuff, if you don't have a personal relationship with the one who's calling you to do those things. And those two things seem to be absolutely diametrically opposed to one another for some of us. But following Christ involves union with Christ. There's that, that teaching that we've gone over so many times where the Bible teaches that uh, we are saved when Christ himself makes his home in us in a real mysterious way and we're also found in him. And that's the, the dynamic of the Christian. We live with the presence of Christ in us, conforming us to his image. It is wonderful and mysterious and dynamic and powerful and you can't do anything apart from that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The kingdom is not merely about doing good things, but a transforming relationship with Christ, an intimate knowledge of him. And we see that. Here's a couple uh, verses to jog your memory of uh, us being told uh, things like this. John 17, verse three, what would you describe eternal life as? Some would describe it as church attendance. Some might describe it as obedience. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and that they may know me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life at its most basic form is to know intimately Christ and the Father. And that word know that comes up so many times through the Bible isn't an intellectual knowledge, like I know this mathematical formula is true, you know, like a, an intellectual assent, nor is it something that you are familiar with. I, I met you yesterday, so I know your name. The knowledge, this knowing that the biblical authors used speaks of the most intimate relationship you can have with someone. You absolutely cannot follow Christ unless you know him intimately. That is eternal life. What are you getting saved to? You're getting saved to Jesus, first and foremost. Everything else is just icing on the cake. 
Galatians 4 verse 9, it's not just us who knows God. Paul says this, he says to the Galatian church, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. I love how he corrects himself. He says, you know God, actually, God knows you. I love that. You're known by God. That's a big, deep thing. And where we might go wrong is we might take two of those things, the rice and the soy sauce, right? We might gravitate towards one over the other. For some of us, we just love doing stuff. We love uh, getting with the program. We love, you know, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. We love holiness and the law of God. And we just do things, you know? We're all about obedience, Others, we love the feeling of just a personal relationship with Jesus. Not so much about religion, we're not into the law, we're not into obedience or doing the right thing, we just love the feeling of being with Jesus, and so it's almost therapeutic in nature, our personal relationship with God. But that personal relationship with God is a transforming relationship that turns you into a different person from the inside out. Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 through 13, I wanna give you a couple passages where we see the knowing Christ intimately uh, interwoven with change in who you are. Paul said in Ephesians four, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith, here it is, and the knowledge of the Son of God. All of this is supposed to be so that we grow more in intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, comma. Love the comma. Sometimes I love the comma. So that we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Deeply interwoven. Knowing Christ will change who you are. You will mature. Something that we're gonna talk quite a lot about this summer. Second Peter 1, 3, and 8. His divine power has granted to us, given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need in what God has given us to live as followers of Christ. Through the knowledge of him who called us. That knowledge of Christ leads us to change. It forms us into disciples. It it dramatically impacts and transforms who we are. You cannot separate the two. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you need to have the intention to do everything that he tells you to do. When you notice those two things is when things start getting really crazy. When you're missing one of them is when things start to get a little crazy, not the good kind of crazy. We have a tendency, don't we, to overemphasize one over the other. Depending on your personality, depending on what type of a person you are, you might be all about the checklists and the religion and the law and the doing the right thing uh, and not so much about the relationship. You might have the relationship with Christ, but you don't wanna, you're not so much into following him or doing what the Bible says. That's just hypocrisy. A relationship with Christ without intending to do what he tells you is hypocrisy, it's fake. I want you to imagine any marriage that looks that way. Imagine you telling your spouse over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Baby, 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 baby. Johnny Cash, the movie, I don't know. But, In the interim periods, you don't do anything loving for that person. You don't listen to them. 
You don't talk to them. You don't spend time with them. You don't encourage them. You actually don't do anything with them. You live in a separate room, perhaps, but you tell them I love you. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you know, it just doesn't work. It's hypocritical. Well, what if you swapped it around? What if you uh, had a relationship with your kids and you did a lot for them? What if you're the type of parent that gave good gifts to your kids, sent them through college, got them presents all through their childhood? You were just that person, maybe that dad that just lavished gifts on your kids, but you were never emotionally present. In fact, you weren't present at all. If you were a kid that grew up in an environment or a home like that, you know the devastation that that is. No gift can possibly replace the love of a father or a mother. So you see these two things need to go together. Professing to know Christ but not doing what he says is hypocrisy. But doing all that he says and not knowing him is legalism. Either way, it's a fine line. You step off to one area, you miss Christ altogether. What the Bible presents the people of God is something far more vivid and far more thrilling. It presents us, yes, good works, but good works that come from a transformation that happens through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We often put it this way to describe whatever we do uh, uh, as a church. We say that uh, ministry flows from intimacy. And when I say ministry, I'm speaking really about anything that God calls you to do as a, as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are in the priesthood of the saints. You are called to be a minister of God wherever he calls you and wherever he has you. And that is gonna flow out, or it should flow out, of a deep knowledge and intimacy of your Savior. The more time you spend with him, the more you sit at his feet like Mary, the more you dive into the deep part of the pool where Christ is, the more the love of God and the more the word of God and the more the kingdom of God will flow out of you. If you kind of remove one of those things, you try to just do what God tells you to do but you don't know him, you're easily going to burn out. I heard one person put it this way and said, burnout doesn't come from, you know, working hard. You never hear a ditch digger burning out, right? They just get tired. It's tiring. It's tiring work. We all have tiring work as Christians. You don't get burnt out because you're tired. You get burnt out because you have set up false expectations of how things are supposed to be. For some of you, you're working really hard for Jesus, but you don't know him. You're doing that because you're trying to impress him. He's not impressed. He doesn't want outward forms. He wants your heart. He'll take care of the rest when he gets your heart. First John chapter two, verse three through six tells us good works coming from transformation through personal relationship with Christ. The apostle John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. One flows out of the other. You're starting to get burnt out for Christ, maybe start spending more time with Christ. If you find yourself spinning your wheels with religious habits, trying to impress God, perhaps trying to impress the church or other people, 
maybe stop for a moment. Open up the Bible, fall on your face, spend time in communion with your God. The individuals that Jesus is rebuking do not have this transformative relationship. I find that very interesting because we could all probably point to people in our lives who looked really good for Christ. Maybe it was you. Getting busy, doing incredible things, praying a lot, putting on a front. Maybe everybody else is fooled. Man, that, that person is just on fire for Christ. Inside you're withering. You know what is so sobering and scary to me about this passage that Jesus speaks to us? Is that these people actually think that they're in the kingdom. They're baffled by Jesus right now. They're like, but Lord, we did everything right. We are so spiritual. Look at my spiritual resume. I did this and I did that and I did that. And look at all these people over here who are really touched by my influence in their life. And look at all the stuff that I've accomplished. And for you, I might add, you know, your kingdom and stuff. Like, you're welcome. And for all stretches of the imagination, these are people who really think they're doing it right. And Jesus is saying, I, I, I don't even know you. I almost feel, I don't, maybe this is wrong to interject this into Jesus' feelings, but I can almost sense, I almost, uh, almost wonder if he's, if, if he's broken by this. You guys, like, I don't need you to cast out demons. You know who I am? I want you, and I don't know you. Brothers and sisters, are you being productive and active and busy for a God you don't even know? Or for a God that you rarely spend time with? How do you know if you're truly being transformed, the rice and the soy sauce? How do you know if you have a personal relationship with Christ that flows into good works that are born of the kingdom? This is the third and last point, the test of love. Following Christ involves obedience, following Christ involves union with Christ, and following Christ involves love. Here's, here's how I'm getting this. In addition to not being known by Jesus, you know, he doesn't know them, in verse 23, he also calls them lawless. They're lawless, in other words, they. They're without the law. They're not obeying. That's pretty straightforward. But what's interesting is this verse shows up only, this word shows up only one other time in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 11 through 12, where we're also, uh, we're also being told about false prophets and their effect on a community. So we're being told in chapter 7, beware of false prophets, judge them by their fruit, and by the way, here is what following Christ looks like. You need to do what I tell you. You need to have a personal relationship with me, right? Now, fast forward to chapter 24, verse 11 through 12, and you see the effect of a false prophet that's had his or her way in a church. Look at what happens. Jesus says, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, there's that word that he uses again, 
because lawlessness will be increased as a result of that happening, false prophets infiltrating, drawing people away from actually becoming disciples, the result is the love of many is going to grow cold. Here's the fruit of the tree. is not ultimately good works, although that is important, but it leads to something. It's not ultimately confession in Christ, although that is very important and that is needed. It's not just a personal relationship, although that is clearly important. We just saw that. All of those things will, if God has his way with you, flow into love coming out of your life, being experienced by you and being shared with others around you. Whenever there is a genuine move of God, you will be sure that you can see added love in that space. There is no mistaking it. You can be fooled by preaching, maybe. You can maybe be fooled by good signs and wonders. You can be fooled by uh, ecstatic behavior. You can be fooled by a number of things, but one certain thing that is very hard to, uh, 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 to uh, create into a counterfeit, one thing that is very hard to mistake is if there is a true, authentic, sincere love born in the heart of a person and a born in the heart of a community that is being shared with one another. If there is ever a genuine move of God, you will, be, you will bet your life that love will abound in that community. You can also be sure that if there's something wrong, love will, go, love will start to grow cold. That's always it's always the thing that takes a hit. Coincidentally, that's also the thing that God cares about the most. When Jesus was speaking about obeying God, he's speaking about the law, he very conveniently summarized every command of God into two things. Remember this? He said the greatest commandment, when uh, I think it was a rich young ruler or the uh, scribe came up to him and says, what's the most important command? Jesus said, it is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. The second greatest command is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus niftily summarizes everything God has ever told us to be ultimately about more love. In fact, Paul tells us that the end goal of every charismatic gift is love too. Speak about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, hey, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and knowledge on earth, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but it's not creating in me more love for people, I'm nothing. Prophecy isn't the end. Good works aren't the end. Confession isn't the end. Church attendance is the end. None of those things are the end. The end is love, born in the heart, experienced by others as God is transforming you to be like him. Noticeably, these false prophets and non-disciples are never identified as having too much love. Jesus never says, you showed too much concern for the poor. You love people too much. Stop it. What he does do is he brings up all the showy stuff. And we talked about showy stuff in chapter six. Prayer, fasting, generosity, all things that are good and are, we're called to, but things that could be easily manipulated for the person who just wants to get glory from other people. 
You could lump into that circle things like casting out demons, supernatural displays, prophecy, anything that looks good. What we see in this group of people is they have a lot of things that look good. They clearly don't know Jesus. First John chapter four, verse seven through nine tells us, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the greatest criteria we have right there. Am I growing more in love with God? Am I showing more love towards people that clearly do not deserve it? Am I getting a little more patient with people? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 if you want a definition of love. Self-sacrificial. Am I bearing with people who don't deserve it? Am I forgetting wrongs that are being done? Am I being more patient with those who don't deserve my patience? Things like that. I'm not talking about the emotion of love, but the self-sacrificial action of love. Am I growing in that? That's the clearest criteria of the follower of Christ. So from all of these available texts and the little we know about this group of people involved, Jesus is rebuking them for two things. One, uh, the first group, you're not doing what I say. The second group, you don't even know me. And when he calls people to be his disciples, he's calling them to know him so personally that they cannot help but do everything that he says. Because for the person who knows Jesus, obeying what he says is not a setback, it's not a dreary uh, list of killjoys. It is a different way of viewing the Messiah. You're seeing in him something so lovely that you just wanna do everything that he says. You wanna be so much like him that you have become his disciple, his taladim. You wanna, you wanna do everything that he does. You wanna think how he thinks. You wanna act like he acts. You wanna love like he loves. You wanna pray like he prays. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't touch that has not touched your heart and out of your life. There's a deep founded desire to do everything that you see in him. That's what it means to be a disciple. I wanna be like Jesus. You might either be giving him lip service this morning but not doing what he says or doing a bunch of things that he says, spiritual, pseudo-religious things but not knowing who he is. Might be on either end of that spectrum. And Jesus' closing warning here is that many people will be like this. Many people, through their ingenuity, through their busyness, through their therapeutic, feel-good, individualistic narcissism will be bending what they read in the scriptures to benefit them, they'll miss the whole thing. Jesus' warning out of love for you and I, don't miss it. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. It's in Christ. It's not up high so that you have to bring it down, Romans chapter 10. It's not buried in the sand that you have to pull it up to where you are. It's close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It is the word of Christ that we proclaim kingdom of God, and this is the gospel that we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has been made presently available to people who otherwise could not get in. Do you want in? There's your man. Do you see in Christ everything that you've ever wanted? Or are you willing to search? Or have you been faking it this whole time, 
I've got good news for you. For the fakers, for the hypocrites, for the legalists, for the Pharisees, for the recovering Pharisees, for the sinners, for the broken, for the outcasts, for the people who belong in a church. The good news of the gospel is that even though you could not love God and love others well, in Christ, the love of God came down to you. I wanna close with, again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's a complete takeover. In this is love, not that we have loved God so spectacularly, kind of paraphrasing it, sorry, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, it means God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Brothers and sisters, do you want that? It's available to you in the son of the living God who died on the cross for your lack of love and rose from the dead to prove that he has power over life as it is. If you have not been experiencing that kind of power, if you have not been experiencing transformation, all you gotta do this morning is simply ask this question. Lord, I wanna know you for real. And whatever it is about you that I uncover in my journey, I'll take it all. Even if it ruffles my feathers, even if it rubs me the wrong way, do it, Lord. He'll never hesitate. He'll never deny a request like that. Heavenly Father, I just ask that as we sing your praises this morning, enter into a time of worship through song. God, in this place, your Holy Spirit would be present to bless in a specific way. The word says that no one comes to you except that the Father draws them, and so I pray that the the Father would be present here by the Spirit to draw us to yourself, to draw us past the religious faking and the hypocrisy and the legalism into a personal transforming relationship with Jesus Christ that leads us to fruit, God, we're those people that right now are saying, we don't wanna just go through the motions Sunday to Sunday. We want desperately to look at our lives and see fruit. We wanna see week in and week out that as you're moving in our lives, there is radical transformative change because, Lord, we've seen in you glimpses of the kingdom. And if that is what following Christ is all about, we wanna follow Christ that the world may know, and that the city of Santa Barbara may know as they look at us, that this life that we see isn't all that there is to it, that the kingdom of God is coming and is now here to make all things new. Lord, may we get a taste of that today, even as we repent of our sins. and come.